Reach out your mighty arm, O Lord God. Show your strength in the sight of all the nations. Spread your salvation on the hearts of multitudes that they may believe and turn to you. May the great Savior of Israel be found by those who seek you not. And through the surprising condescension of your grace, show yourself to those who do not inquire of you. May your ancient people not only be provoked to anger, but awakened to follow the same path and put in their claim for those blessings which you by your Son have stooped low to offer all the Gentiles. Father, as we ask you to bring in all nations to your church, we pray too for our partner church, Young Kwan Korean Presbyterian Church. We pray for the preaching and shepherding ministry of Pastor Chang. We ask that many students and young adults would be responsive and receptive to the gospel, that they would be transformed and grow up in faith. We pray for the church's ongoing financial needs, that you would care for them and provide for them and grant them unity and courage to proclaim the gospel in our town and abroad. Lord, we pray also for Unity Church of Jesus Christ in town. Please bless them in their mission to draw people to Christ and show them your unconditional love. And Lord, may our brothers and sisters there walk daily with Jesus and proclaim true peace, hope, and reconciliation to our community for the sake of your glory and your name. Lord, we ask this morning for your blessing on the ministry of the Pregnancy Resource Clinic. Lord, with all that's happening in the news from the Supreme Court right now, there's much to be hopeful for, but even if Roe versus Wade is overturned, we still have much work to do here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to protect the lives of the unborn. And so we ask that you would help the staff of the PRC here in State College to provide excellent care for women through and beyond their pregnancies. And we pray that many of these women would not only be supported and encouraged not to terminate their pregnancy, but also that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and find life in him for both themselves and their babies. Please be with us, Lord, as we turn now to your word, as we hear it preached Please shape our minds and our hearts to think the way you think. And Lord, reconciliation among people groups is something we hear a lot about in the world, and yet the world gets so much wrong. And please help us to be shaped by your word, to be transformed, to be encouraged, and remake us into one new humanity that we might praise you together with one voice, among all kinds of people. Bless our time now in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I recently heard a brother black pastor telling his mostly black congregation that they cannot resist racism in America by being racists themselves toward whites. 
He told his congregation that judging people, any people, by the color of their skin is wicked and abhorrent to God. This brother pastor taught his congregation that the only solution to address the racism in our day is to provide real peace and reconciliation bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I wanted to link arms with this brother and ask him what more I could do to come alongside him and support him and his congregation in this work of reconciliation. Because that is a foundation that we all ought to be able to stand on. This is the key question raised by our passage this morning as we continue our way through the book of Ephesians. This question is, who must pay for reconciliation to take place? Who must pay? So many worldly attempts at reconciliation fail before they even get started because they don't begin with the peace and reconciliation purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Such attempts, such worldly attempts begin by trying to figure out who exactly has to pay for the situation we find ourselves in. And these attempts at reconciliation don't achieve reconciliation in the end. They only make matters worse. If we expect to make those that we don't like pay for reconciliation to take place, reconciliation will never happen. The need for more and more payment will never run out. But if Jesus has already paid for them, we don't have to keep making them pay. And now we have a basis for real reconciliation. That's where we're going this morning. In our study of Ephesians, we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 2 that salvation is completely by grace. You and I can't do anything to earn salvation. It is the gift of God. And now this week we come to verse 11 of chapter 2. If you have a church Bible, we're on page 917. And we get to apply all those truths from the first part of the chapter in pretty uncomfortable ways. Because if it is true that your salvation is by grace and not by anything you've done, it must also be true that my salvation is by grace and not by anything that I've done. And that also means that the salvation of the person or the type of person you most dislike is also by grace and not by anything they have done. And this means that unless you think you can pay for your salvation, you can't expect to make anyone else pay for theirs either. 
And we will never see true racial reconciliation in our country unless we build it on this foundation with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. You can see on your outlines who used to have to pay, who has now paid, and what's been paid for. That's where we're going at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. Let me pray once more for our time in God's word. Our Father, please help us to see the implications of your grace, of your salvation that is by faith, by grace, through faith, and it is not of ourselves that we may not boast. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see this salvation not just for ourselves, but for all whom you have called to yourself all whom you have made to be a part of your people, and open our eyes that we might see these things in your word here this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We start by looking at who used to have to pay, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In these opening verses of our text, the first thing Paul addresses is who used to have to pay in order for reconciliation to take place. In verse 11, he introduces the two major factions of his day. These were the two opposing teams, and he addresses them by means of their epithets for one another. He shines a light on their animosity by employing the slurs each group uses for the other. You have the uncircumcision on one side and you have the circumcision on the other. Now we've grown so used to these words, we read them a lot in the Bible, that it's easy to become so familiar that we, we lose the impact of these names that they call one another. Don't forget that these words refer to a very private part of a man's body. This is not like calling someone four eyes or doofus. It is far more personal and antagonistic. But the point that Paul makes is that one of these groups, that which is called the circumcision, it's it's the slur for the Jews... This group has always been in a position of privilege over the other group, the non-Jews, the Gentiles. And they've had such privilege to the point where the Jews have had certain things handed to them that the non-Jews have always had to pay for themselves. And they've had to pay in five particular ways listed in verse 12. The first is their separation from Christ. Separation from Christ. The non-Jews did not have any assurances that a Messiah, a Christ, would come to rescue them. 
They had to worry all along about their standing before the one true God and whether they would have to find a way to rescue themselves from their sin. They had to pay for their separation from Christ. Second, he says they had to pay for their alienation from the covenants of promise. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. In other words, they were... uh, I'm sorry... I skipped one. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That's the second one. They were alienated from God's people. The non-Jews were not naturally included in the blessings of the people of God. God gave instructions to his people that evildoers should be punished and victims of wrongdoing should be protected. But the non-Jews and the non-Jewish nations had no such assurances. All they had was the whims of their rebellious leaders and whatever false gods were worshipped at the time. So they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were not a part of God's people. Number three is they were strangers to the covenants of promise. They had to pay for their exclusion from the covenants of promise. In other words, Israel had been given a law that had with it, attached to it, promises for those who keep that law. God would send rain on their land. He would give them an abundant harvest. They would have successful childbirth, a victorious military, and plenty of food. And when God's people failed to keep their side of their covenant, their bargain with God, God himself would step in more often than not and make it right. You see, they had these covenants of promise, these binding agreements with God and what God was going to do for them. But the non-Jews had no such agreement with God. They were excluded from the covenants of promise, so they were on their own. The fourth thing they had to pay for was hopelessness. He says they were having no hope at the end of verse 12. This basically sums up the other three issues before it, but there's more to it as well. The non-Jews had nothing to look forward to in their future with respect to God other than a judgment of all humanity according to their deeds. They had no hope that their lives, their nations, or their dreams were really going anywhere or that God would smile favorably upon them. They had no assurances from the only God who could bring such dreams to fulfillment. They had no hope like Israel's hope. And fifth, the the last thing they had to pay for themselves at the end of verse 12 is that they were without God in the world. They had to pay for their godlessness. Now, the nations of the world had many, many gods of their own making. There were plenty of demons given free reign to roam about and deceive the nations and find worshipers among those nations. But these non-Jewish nations had no access to the one true God, the creator of the sea and the dry land, the Lord of heaven and earth. You see, the Jews could go to their temple, they could meet with their God, they could offer a sacrifice to make themselves right with Him, but non Jews had no such access. 
So the non-Jews, the uncircumcision as they were called, they had to pay for themselves. They had to pay for their separation from the Messiah, their alienation from God's people, their exclusion from the covenants of promise, their hopelessness, and their godlessness. What a wonderful state of affairs, right? And the Jews, more or less, didn't mind the fact that it was like this for the non-Jews. You see, at the temple in Jerusalem, the Jewish temple, the main building was, was, it was built on a hill and it was on this elevated platform with three parts in this temple. There's one part that only the priests were allowed to go into and a second part that Jewish men could enter and a third part that Jewish women could participate in. So this is where all the Jews were up on the top level meeting with God in the temple. But from that raised main level, you had to go down five steps to reach a walled platform. It was kind of like the... uh, the quarantine tank, you know, the pass through the airlock. (laughs) Because from there, you would go down another 14 steps to another wall that was about four feet thick. And on the outside of that wall was what was called the court of the Gentiles. That's where all of the non-Jews were allowed to worship. If they even wanted to worship the true God, they could come there. And they could see the, the heights of the temple poking above that wall. But that was as close to God as they were allowed to get. And in fact, if they tried to get any closer, there were signs posted on the wall saying, no foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure round the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That's the state of affairs. That's who used to have to pay. But now, Paul goes on to say, something has changed. Something has happened to change all of this. Look at verses 13 through 17. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to god in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you, to those who were near. But now Paul explains who has paid for all of these non-Jews to be brought near. Verse 13, he says, but now in Christ Jesus. In verse 14, he says, he himself is our peace. In verse 17, he says, He came and preached peace. 
In no uncertain terms, it was the Lord Jesus Christ who paid for this reconciliation of peace. And what was the currency paid in this transaction? See, at the end of verse 13, he says, You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, he bought this peace with his own blood. His death on a Roman cross made this peace and reconciliation possible. Now, how exactly did this work? Paul explains three things that Jesus did to pay for the reconciliation of all races of humanity. And then he highlights the two results of that payment. So let me walk through these things. Three things he did and then two results. First, the three things he did to pay for reconciliation. First is in verse 15. He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. In other words, what Paul's saying is, instead of making you pay by means of your obedience to God's law, Jesus paid for all of you non-Jews when he obeyed God's law on your behalf. And therefore, these ordinances no longer hang over you with an unpaid balance. Your obligation has been paid in full. Therefore, he thereby abolished them. First thing he did was abolish the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The second thing he did at the end of verse 15 is he created one new humanity in place of the two. He created one new humanity in place of the two. So in other words, he didn't make you pay by means of your self-help and self-improvement. He paid for all of you when he created a new humanity in his own image. Just as in the book of Genesis, he created the first humanity from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, so now Jesus has created a new humanity from the blood he shed on the cross. It's like taking two lumps of Play-Doh and squishing them together by means of a blood-based bonding agent. It's a little gross, I know. But we have to understand what Jesus did with his blood. And he bonds them together into a single new lump. As far as Jesus is concerned, there is no longer any difference in status or access to God for different races of people. Not Jew and Gentile, not black or Asian or white or Native American. There is absolutely a difference among groups of people in terms of history and experience that still has lasting effects. I'm not saying we ignore that, but there is no difference in terms of status or access to God. But that's not all. The third thing Jesus did in verse 16 was he reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross. You see, the cross on which Jesus hung was a little bit like a mother's womb, through which was birthed a new nation, a new people, a new humanity, 
a new body for Jesus Christ. Both sides in the ongoing feud here have been reconciled to God. Both have become part of one new human community. So Jesus paid for your obligation under the law. He paid for your recreation into a new humanity. And he paid for your reconciliation to God. All of you. On all sides of these historic fights and feuds. And so what were the results of these things that Jesus did? Paul lists two results. First, at the end of verse 16, he tells us that Jesus killed the hostility. When Jesus died, human hostility died with him. And verse 17, the second result is that he came and preached peace to those on both sides of the wall, which has now been torn down. Verse 14, the wall has been torn down. He preached to you who were near and those who were far away. Because he killed the hostility, he can preach peace. Now think about that. Jesus came and preached peace to you who are near and you who are far. You see, Jesus didn't just speak against human hostility. He killed it. He broke its power when he himself died. And then he came and preached peace to folks on both sides. Now, how did Jesus do that? How can Paul say that he came and preached peace to you? The Gospels don't record Jesus ever going on a preaching tour of Asia Minor. As far as we know, he never visited the city of Ephesus. How did he preach to these people? The point is that he preached to them by means of his representatives, the apostles and prophets. So when Paul came to Ephesus and preached peace between the races... It was as though Jesus himself was there preaching peace. And so, friends, as I now stand here in the name of Jesus Christ as his authorized representative preaching peace between all groups of all people, Jesus himself is preaching peace to you. What is the point here? Verses 13 and 17, the point is that Paul holds up the cross on which Jesus died. And Paul says, may he rest in peace. But he's not saying, may Jesus rest in peace, because of course, three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, never to die again. No, when Paul lifts high the cross of Christ, he says, may the old humanity with his hostility rest in peace. Brothers and sisters, when we gaze on the cross of Jesus Christ, we have not truly appropriated its blessings and its benefits if we fail to see our history of human hostility and thereby confess the untimely death of such hostility so that we can now live together in peace with all kinds of people. In Christ's church. Black and white. Old and young. Academic and athletic. Local and international. Please look around this room. Really. 
Literally, I mean that. Look around this room. If you are on Zoom, please, for a moment, could you please turn on your camera and turn on gallery mode if possible so you can see everybody. I would like you to look as many people as possible in the eyes right now. And please answer two questions silently as you look around. Don't speak out loud. Don't write it down. But frankly, admit to yourself these two things as you look around. Who in this church is most like me? Who do I get along with the best? Question number one. Question number two. Who in this church is the least like me? Whom I get along with the least. Okay, look around. I want you to get two names in your mind. Take a good look. You're free to stand up. You're free to turn around. If you need to get a sight of one another, I want you to see the whites of one another's eyes. Who in this church do I get along with the best? And who in this church do I get along with the least? Now, get that first name in mind. Think about the person who is most like you or whom you get along with the best. I want you to fill in the blank. I'm going to give you a sentence. Fill in the blank with that person's name. Jesus paid for blank. So I don't have to make him pay. I don't have to make her pay. Jesus paid for blank. So I don't have to make him or her pay. Okay, that one's not too difficult. Now, think about the person who is least like you, whom you get along with the least, and please fill in the blank with their name. Jesus paid for, so I don't have to make him or her pay. What does it mean that Jesus paid for that person what would it look like for the hostility between us to die what would it look like for every one of us to have equal access to god the father as a community through the blood of jesus christ what would it look like for our dividing walls to come down The walls that exist at times in this church between families and singles. Walls between children and adults. Walls between Russians and Africans and Hispanics and the rest. All those we have represented here. Walls between campus missionaries and working professionals. Friends, Jesus has killed the hostility between groups of people. And now through me and the other preachers in this church, he is preaching peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. To help us get more specific about what it ought to look like to tear down those walls, let us now take a look at how Paul explains what has been paid for. What is it exactly that's been paid for? Verses 18 through 22. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what's been paid for, verse 18 is the climax of Paul's argument, the main thing he's paid for, and then the so then in verse 19 indicates two resulting implications. So let me tackle those three matters, the climax and then the two implications. First is the climax, verse 18, it's access. He's paid for access. That's what Jesus is paid for, that we would all have access in one spirit to the Father. You see, because Jesus killed the hostility and he's recreated a new humanity with his blood, now that means that nobody needs to have a priest in order to have a relationship with God the Father, other than Jesus the high priest. Nobody needs to clean up their history or pay a fee. Nobody needs to adopt a certain culture or set of behaviors. Friends, you do not have to read the Bible in the ESV translation. You do not have to particularly enjoy every song we sing here. You do not have to learn a secret code or handshake. Now, the scripture does tell us that we must not be hasty to make someone a leader in the church. But at the same time, we may not deny access to the Father to anyone who professes to trust in Jesus alone as their hope of glory. So our worship services are open to the public and membership in our church is available to anyone who makes a credible profession of faith. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper each month, it's available to all who want to follow the Lord Jesus. You don't have to be a member of this church to participate, though you ought to be a member somewhere as a part of Christ's body. All believers in Jesus have equal access to the Father. That's what Jesus paid for in verse 18. What are the two implications of that access? First, in verse 19, we now have citizenship that has been bought and paid for. If you have set your trust in Jesus, your identity has undergone a complete transformation. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, verse 19. You are no longer separated or excluded. You're no longer hopeless or godless. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. You are my sisters and my brothers as we all sit around the table with our elder brother, Jesus Christ. So if you profess to trust Jesus and become a member in this church, you have a real stake in what happens here. You have a say in the direction of things. You are a fellow citizen. You have an opportunity to shape this church to become more effective as Christ's body in State College, Pennsylvania and beyond. Jesus paid for your access. And the first implication is that he paid for your citizenship in this body. But that's not all. 
Finally, he also paid for his new temple. Verses 20 through 22. And I think this is the craziest thing Paul has to say here. Because there is that beautiful, glorious, and imposing structure in Jerusalem. The temple upon which the Jews had set all of their hopes and their identity. But by the time Paul writes this letter, that building had long lost its spiritual status. Jesus, before he died, he declared that he was erecting a new temple in his own body. And not one stone would be left upon another of that physical building. And Paul now develops the idea to make the outrageous suggestion that the glory of God, the pillar of cloud and fire, which was so holy that normal people could not touch the holy things in the holy temple without risking their lives. He says that cloud, that fire, that glory is now inside you. All of you. This new building has a foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the words they spoke. This new temple has a cornerstone, Christ Jesus himself. And this new temple has a resident. Verse 22, God the Father by means of his spirit. This is what Jesus paid for. This is what Jesus died for. And when the hostility between groups of people has truly been killed within the church of Jesus Christ, this house then can be a house of prayer for all nations. It is a place where the praises of God pour forth from the lips of the people of God. It is a place where the glory of God burns hot and bright and the wicked tremble at the sight of it. Brothers and sisters, this temple, which is all of us put together, is the only place on earth where all kinds of people, groups can come together in peace. This building bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus is the one place where all people can find access to the Father. And I think you know I'm not talking about this physical structure around us. This building that is us. This access purchased by Jesus is the only foundation for lasting reconciliation among races and tribes of people. So friends, as you hear about racial reconciliation in our culture, please celebrate as much as you can. Because racial reconciliation is wonderful and God would have us do nothing less than that. The church of Jesus Christ should have been at the forefront of the civil rights movement in the 60s, but sadly it was not. The church of Jesus Christ should have been at the forefront of the contemporary racial reconciliation movement, but sadly it was not. And the world has come in to fill that absence with all kinds of horrible thinking. So please celebrate the goals of reconciliation as much as you can. But please 
beware. Beware of false gospels built on faulty foundations. Reconciliation in the name of anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified is doomed to fail. There are debates in the broader church about things like how much activism should we participate in and what about this anti-racist movement, ancestral guilt, reparations, what do we do with ongoing inequities, all kinds of debates, things that are worth debating. But friends, any such debates that do not begin with and result in the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the one who makes one new humanity out of the two, any such debates are false and ineffective. Any tactics not founded on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to rescue lost sinners will make things worse and not better between groups of people. One final application for those of you who do not yet follow Jesus Christ. You are not yet a part of this building in which the glory of God dwells. Please be honest about the fact that attempts to promote reconciliation apart from Jesus are not working. History has shown clearly enough that if we try to reconcile people by making people pay for such reconciliation to happen, relations get only worse and never better. There is no end in sight. There is no real reconciliation. So please, friend, find peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ so that even your hostility may be put to death. Jesus has paid for you. Will you trust today that it is so? Friends, whatever hostility you face in the church, please remember, if Jesus has already paid for them, you don't have to keep making them pay. So please remember that we all used to have to pay, but Jesus has now paid. Therefore, we all have access, we all are fellow citizens, and together we are the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we bow before you. Who, who could have thought up such a plan for the reconciliation of humanity? Such a plan as to send your Son to die that our hostility might be killed and there could be real hope of real peace among us. Please help us, Lord, to walk in this peace, to preach peace to those who are near and to those who are far away in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, please enable us to see more peace in our lifetimes within your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.